Our second reading, as I said, is about an offering. It is about um, a moment in time on the Temple Mount, the large grounds on which the Jerusalem Temple sat back in the first century before, only 40 years before it was finally, once and for all, destroyed. Only the basement wall is left there 2,000 years later. Uh, the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, we call it. But at the time, the entire temple was intact, the Herod's Temple, they call it. It was the second construction of the Jerusalem Temple. And this is a story uh, that happens as Jesus is walking through the temple grounds and comes upon the treasury of the temple. Uh, Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church this morning. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with one another and Seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked Jesus, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which together are worth a penny. Then Jesus called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. May the meditations of our hearts together upon your word to us today be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. She has given more than all those who gave large sums out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she has, all she has to live on. Sounds pretty good, in theory. It's like the little boy in Sunday school whose teacher asked the Sunday school class if they would give a million dollars to support missionaries who are working around the globe. Yes, they all screamed, we'd give a million dollars. She asked them, would you give a thousand dollars to support the missionaries? And again, with their hands shooting up in the air, they yelled, yes, we'd give a thousand dollars. How about a hundred dollars? She asked the kids. Oh, yes, we would. They all agreed with their hands shooting up in the air. Would you give just a dollar to the missionary? She asked. And all the children exclaimed yes with their hands in the air, all except Johnny. Johnny, the teacher said, as she saw that his hand wasn't up, and instead his hand was dug deep into his pocket. Why didn't you say yes this time? Well, Johnny stammered, I have a dollar. And I don't want to give it. But she, out of her poverty, Jesus said, has put in everything, more than anyone else. What does that look like in real life? I don't know if you saw this story uh, on social media or in the news, but just over two weeks ago, five 
20-something men, Sikh men, from Great Britain were on vacation and hiking in the Golden Ears National Park in British Columbia, Canada, not far from where my family is from. And they were hiking just above this raging waterfall. And as I said, all these young men were Sikhs. And as they hiked along, this group of men saw down below two other hikers stranded on a steep ledge, just sort of on a little thin part of the steep uh, wall right above the roaring waterfall, just inches away. One slip, one wrong step, and they'd be gone. The stranded hikers yelled up to the Sikh hikers asking for help. They said, can you go call someone? But as one of the Sikhs, Kuljinar Kinda, told news reporters later, we walked for about 10 minutes, but there was no cell service. We couldn't get a single. And then we came up with the idea to tie our turbans together, which they did. Kinda and his friends removed their turbans, unfurled the fabric, and they created a makeshift rope, 33 feet long, which they extended all the way down to these two men who were stuck down there just a few inches from certain drowning. And it's all on video. You can Google it. And I want to remind us that Sikhism, which, by the way, just as a reminder, isn't Hinduism and isn't Islam. Sikhism is a religion that originated in the Punjab region of the Indian subcontinent around the end of the 15th century CE. There are about 25 to 30 million Sikhs today. The core beliefs of Sikhism include faith and meditation on the name of the one God creator, the divine unity and equality of all humankind, engaging in what they call seva, selfless service, and striving for justice and prosperity for all people. So Sikhism rejects uh, any claim to a monopoly on religious truth or absolute truth, and in that sense, it's like Presbyterian Christianity. We don't claim a monopoly on absolute truth. But for Sikhs, among other requirements, hair removal from any part of the body, cutting or removing your hair, is strictly forbidden, which is why Sikh men wear turbans. The turban is a distinct aspect of Sikh identity, and it has both practical and spiritual significance. During battle, back when they did a lot more fighting. The turban served as a flexible, breathable helmet protecting against arrows, bullets, maces, spears, and swords. I enjoyed the research on this. It also kept a Sikh's long hair out of his eyes and away from an enemy's grasp. You see long hair being used in football these days. People grab the hair and tackle people. Covering your long hair with the turban helps protect it from becoming tangled or coming into contact with pollutants. Tying a turban, in fact, is an event that occurs every morning in the life of a Sikh. It's kind of a spiritual ritual. Whenever the turban is removed, it must be unwrapped carefully so that it never touches the floor, then shaken out, stretched, and folded neatly to be ready for the next use. In Sikh, the headwear is usually removed only in private, in an attitude of prayer, away from the, pul from the public. But Kinda and his friends said, in Sikhi, we are taught not only to care for and revere our turbans, we are taught to help someone in any way we can with anything we have, even our turban. This morning, we're reading about a pretty famous widow. 
that Jesus meets. We all sort of know her. We all kind of remember her, even though for the life of us, we can't recall her name, which is understandable because Mark never gives us her name. This widow is a type without a husband, in the value system of the first century, she's someone on the margins of society and other people's awareness, with no money, no means of support, no way to have children, no social capital, no prospects. She is completely vulnerable, this woman, and what she has, which is barely anything, is most likely what she can only get from a day-to-day kind of putting things together hand-to-mouth from handouts. But you know this woman, so do I. She's the one who approaches your car when you're waiting at a stoplight. Or she's sitting there on the sidewalk ahead of you as you approach. And maybe you'll just avoid eye contact and hurry by. Or maybe you'll cross the street and go over on the other side to make it easier for everybody. We don't know how old she is, Mark doesn't say this morning, but her invisibility reminds us of how we choose not to see certain people. Poor people, elderly people, homeless people, people who've lost everything, people who used to be in our sphere of notice, but for whatever reason have moved out, illness, bad luck, mistakes, homelessness, hunger, people who are bruised and broken, people None of us want to be, this woman is invisible. And so it makes sense that when Jesus, in this story from Mark, sits down in front of the temple treasury, he doesn't see her. He first sees all of these upwardly mobile people, these people who are respectable members of society. And Mark tells us that Jesus watches as these people very visibly pull out large sums of money and plop them loudly and proudly into these giant jars, which for them were like our offering plates, a way to collect money for the temple and for the ministry that happened there. But Jesus doesn't just see them. He sees her, this invisible person. Jesus sees and watches as she comes up to those giant jars and pulls out the last two coins she has in this world, which together are only worth a penny. And she tosses them in. And then he says to his disciples, truly I tell you, amen, amen. This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury today. Because all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has given all she has, everything she has to live on. It's pretty powerful stuff. She gives 100%, way above the tithe. And the traditional interpretation of this pretty recognizable story from Mark is that her gift is better because she gives more as a percentage than they do, as a percentage of her wealth. And sure enough, 100% is about as much as you can give, especially when you compare it to people who just give what's left over, what they can manage after they've met all their important commitments and priorities. In fact, I'm not great in math, but if everybody in this church gave 100% of our income, we'd be doing pretty well. The heat would be working in the center part of the building this morning, I can guarantee you that. In fact, if everyone gave 90%, I'll generous, I'll drop it down to 80. 
or 50 or 10 or even five, we'd be doing a lot better, pandemic or no pandemic. And that's the easy way to read this story today. It's a common way. It's the low-hanging fruit. Generous widow kind of tried to make us feel guilty with an unrealistic example of giving, not until it hurts, but until we've got nothing left. Someone whose main role in the few minutes that we pause to notice her or think about her is to make us feel guilty because none of us is ready to give like she does. A colleague, Caroline Lewis, says, I think this story tells a truth about ourselves, not just this widow, that we are very good at ignoring her, both because we don't want to be her and because to help this widow might demand the kind of sacrifice that she herself demonstrated. Maybe we just sit with that for a bit, noting the thin line we walk between pity and empathy, between feeling good about ourselves and compassion, between a kind of mandated kindness and true mercy. And another truth about ourselves, we hold her up to heights that make it easy to forget who, who she truly was and is. She becomes a mere illustration for some point so as to justify and ask. But what I'd like to do this morning with you is to reinterpret what this widow does in a slightly different light when she takes out those two coins and puts them in to the treasury. You know, in our Reformed Protestant Christian tradition, the branch of Protestantism which produced Presbyterianism, the way you choose to live your life, what you do, with everything that you've been given, not just on Sundays and not just with the church, your vocation, your job, your commitments, your priorities, everything you do is seen and valued as a creative work like the work of an artist, like Eric. Everything you do, everything that you're busy doing is taking part in and sharing in God's creative work, which began back in chapter one of Genesis, as we read in Confirmation this morning, when God started as the spirit hovered on the face of the unformed universe, and God said, let there be light, and there was light and God saw that it was good. We are God's artistic creations, and what we do every day is contributing to that work. And we're not perfect. Like a pot on a potter's wheel, we keep spinning, and the hands of a loving God keep molding and shaping you and me, lovingly embracing our imperfections, helping us to become the unique creation you and I were born to be. In that, and in that sense, this widow in Mark's gospel today is an artist, someone who creates something of value out of nothing, out of a very compromised situation, out of a corrupt temple economic context in which she is exploited, yet she refuses to let her circumstances even this corrupt temple economy, which like so many religious institutions even today, feeds off the generosity of the poor so that the wealthy, including the religious leadership, 
can stay in a very comfortable place in life, yet she refuses to allow anyone or anything to keep her from doing what she knows she must do from giving the very best of herself. She refuses to let all that's stacked against her keep her from creating the work of art that she is and that she wants to be. And the question is, what work of art are you creating and am I creating with the lives we choose to live, with the decisions we make, with the commitments we make? Because as imperfect as you and I are, that's what we're doing every day. That's what our faith holds up, that our lives, not just our religious Sunday morning lives, are holy. They are a calling to ministry. They are artistic creations. I always like the story of the famous photographer who went to a fancy socialite dinner on Park Avenue in New York City. As he came through the front door, the host who was waiting for him said, oh, I love your photographs. They are wonderful. You must have a fantastic camera. And the photographer looked at her kind of funny but didn't say anything until later, just after they finished the meal, he leaned over to the host and said, that was a wonderful meal. You must have a fantastic stove. You know, what we do, what we give to the world, is an expression of who we are, our truest, deepest self. The widow today in this text gives more in that sense than money. She gives the very best of herself. And that's, I think, why Jesus tells us that she gave more than everybody else who just gave what they could afford, just what was left over. You know, in the 1830s, between 12,000 and 15,000 Native Americans of the Choctaw tribe were forcibly relocated from their ancestral home in Mississippi to Oklahoma, forced, as you probably know, to walk thousands of miles along what became known as the Trail of Tears. And along the way, as much as a quarter of the tribe's population, men, women, and children were lost to death and starvation and mistreatment. All and the effects of that brutal relocation, the Trail of Tears, which they were forced to do by the United States government, were felt and are still being felt long, long afterwards. That was in the 1830s. Just about 15 years later, in 1845, across the Atlantic Ocean, a fungus devastated Ireland's potato crop. And the Irish depended upon potatoes for food, especially the poorer amongst the population. The Irish potato famine would go on to cause widespread starvation and disease, killing hundreds of thousands of people and having a catastrophic effect on that country that lasted for decades and decades and decades. News of the Irish potato famine was first reported in the American newspaper later in the year 1845. The news eventually reached the Choctaw people in 1847. The Choctaw leaders had already, as we know, experienced their own tribulations. So when they heard about the plight of the Irish, they decided to dig into their own pockets and they donated $170, which is about $5,000 in today's money, 
to the victims of the potato famine in Ireland. And that generosity from the Choctaw people who had just undergone this horrible experience themselves created a bond between the two peoples, the Choctaw and the Irish, that lasts to this day. In 2018, Ireland created a scholarship for Choctaw youth saying to the Choctaw people, your act of kindness has never been and never will be forgotten in Ireland. They, out of their poverty, gave more because they gave the best of themselves. She, out of her poverty, has given everything. And that makes all the difference. Amen.